Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Network Collective. In today's episode, we have an excellent panel of guests that's here to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of extending layer two networks. So joining us today to talk about extending layer two networks, we have three excellent guests. We're gonna give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. And we are going to uh, start it off with Chris. Thanks, and thanks for the inclusion in today's show. I really appreciate that. So I'm Chris Gain. Uh, I've been in the networking industry for a little over 20 years. I'm currently a systems uh, engineer and uh, love bantering about everything networking. Excellent. And you can find me uh, all over the web, but primarily at uh, CCIE14430 uh, on Twitter. All right. Thanks, Chris. Uh, joining us for uh, his second show uh, with Network Collective is uh, Kevin. Kevin. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. I appreciate uh, coming back on the show. My name is Kevin Myers. I'm a network architect and co-founder of IP Architects, which is a firm that does uh, white box integration uh, for enterprise and ISP. All right. And last, certainly not least, is, uh, is our good friend, Nick. Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me in the show. Um, according to my accent, you will recognize the fact that I've been uh, um, raised in, uh, in the U.S., right? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> right. I'm, a, I'm a French guy who relocated in the U.S. Uh, seven months ago, and uh, I'm uh, living in a great city of, uh, of Austin in the middle of uh, the Texas, and I'm a network engineer. I'm specialized in uh, routing and switching data center and unified communications. And you can find me at uh, vpacket.net, and uh, you can find me on, on Twitter as well at vpackets. All right, let's uh, let's get right into it. So, when we're talking about layer two extension, what are what are some of the kind of motivating factors? What are the what are the reasons that people are looking to extend layer two uh, beyond just a single physical location? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, layer two extension's been around for a while. Uh, you know, I think we all started out as uh, what I like to call naked spanning tree and uh, lots of uh, battle scars from uh, trying to do layer two extensions that way. And then the market's kind of matured, right, from each manufacturer, each vendor has come up with uh, newer ways for us to be able to accomplish this task. And it seems like the goals are generally around projects that uh, include either temporary data center interconnect, or mm -hmm. what we often refer to as DCI. Uh, there's also permanent DCI, where people are trying to acquire more of an active-active data center philosophy. Of course, active-active means different things to different people in the stack. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then, uh, and then lately, it seems like a, a big area of conversation has been around hybrid cloud and how do I extend out to a single hybrid cloud provider or potentially multiple hybrid cloud providers. So I think that's really brought uh, DCI in and of itself to the forefront of how are we going to solve these problems that, uh, that the network team is being asked to provide solutions for. Now, I mean, I'm seeing, I guess, on my customer base, uh, quite a few people who are who are approaching this from a disaster recovery standpoint. Are you guys seeing that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it seems like uh, that that was some of the first use cases. You know, if we go way back and, and people that engaged things like uh, SunGuard, uh, hey, I bought a little bit of space, I can turn things up, and and then realizing that maybe that doesn't meet the business's objectives for things like RTO and RPO. Uh, and so more of maybe a primary secondary where the secondary isn't fully lit all the time, but let's minimize the amount of moving parts that we have to uh, touch in order to restore service in another site. And what I hear more and more from even the mid-sized enterprises, let alone the bigger ones, is that, uh, hey, if we've spent all that money on the facilities, uh, the routing and switching and the power and the cooling those other locations, what can we do to take advantage of that and actually switch production packets in those facilities as well? So uh, some people are still in that DR mode, but I think a lot of others are looking at it from a dollar standpoint and saying, I'd, I'd rather stuff not sit there dormant. I'd like to take advantage of it if possible. So you mean utilizing all the resources that you spent money on? And right. Have you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. At least some set, right? I mean, it, it may not be full-blown active-active, but at least, uh, hey, let's let's switch some of our applications uh, out of another location instead of just sitting there and 
and hoping that from an audit standpoint, our DR tests actually work, uh, knowing full well that we don't always uh, do our best to, to adhere to an annual uh, DR test. All right. So let's, uh, let's just say that we're, we're going to be doing a, a layer two extension for whatever the motivations are that we've, that we've talked about. What are some of the, um, you know, some of the factors, what needs to be considered? What are, what are some of the things you need to think about before you start a layer two extension project? Well, I, I think, uh, after you, Kevin, I think, you know, essentially, uh, I think we've talked a lot about isolation of the layer two environment is critically important. And I think there was a lot of agreement in isolation of spanning tree, BPDU filtering. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to the protocol that you use to, uh, you know, to do that isolation and do that extension because, um, you know, some of them handle it inherently. Some of them you're going to be doing a manual BPDU filtering uh, between the data centers. So, uh, you know, to me, that's the first most critical thing is to figure out what are the spanning tree environments like the data center. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know one of the things I looked at was, do we have any misbehavior in spanning tree before we join, you know, look at these, <laughs> is there something that's not behaving well in one data center, you know, get, let's get that corrected. And then we'll go ahead and, uh, you know, maybe either create a neutral spanning tree, uh, you know, between the two, uh, which, you know, it's not as, not as done as much anymore. I don't try to do it. Um, it's more just filtering and using some other overlays to take care of that. Um, you know, that's at least one of the first things that I look at. All right. Well, you're talking, you're talking about some solutions to to problems maybe maybe we should start there maybe we should start with what what are some of the risks i mean you're talking about things that we can do to 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 look at spanning tree and possibly some other mitigation techniques but you know uh what i guess in the considerations like what what is uh what are we trying to fix like what's the problem Oh, as far as the justification and use case, I think, you know, the, the biggest ones that I've been faced with are you have applications that are, you know, essentially for whatever reason, not capable of being highly available at layer three. Um, and I think probably everybody, you know, in the podcast has dealt with that at some point or other, you know, whether it's because it's part of a network migration, whether it's because you've got, you know, an enterprise has this application that nobody wants to spend the money to rewrite, you know, whatever the case is, uh, at least for me, that's one of the biggest things that I've seen as a driver saying, hey, uh, you know, we have this application, we want to do something with it. And so we identified L2DCI as, you know, the mechanism by which, uh, you know, we want to handle that. Yeah. Is, okay, go ahead. Yeah, and, and something that we also need to do, uh, to, to consider when we are talking about layer two data center interconnect is the size of the data center, is the size of the company that we are trying to, uh, to help when we are doing such things. I mean, it's not the same as building two small data centers in the same city and interconnecting just with a, with a trunk and a, and a dark fiber. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you have another company that has thousands of virtual machines and you need to do real, um, real DCI, and by real DCI, I mean layer three, uh, layer two over layer three. And that's, Definitely not the same kind of technology. Definitely not, not the same kind of uh, of problem, and obviously not not the same kind of uh, money that will be um, that that will be spent by uh, by that company. Mm -hmm. So, Kevin, you brought up something interesting uh, when you were talking just a second ago, and that's you know talking about applications that have uh, layer two adjacency requirements. Uh, I, you know, I, I hear that, and I've heard that a lot. Um, I do have to say that like when you start pulling back the covers on that, uh, the requirement is not always a requirement so much as it is we don't understand well, it or we don't want to rewrite it or we want to do, don't want to do something else. So we're going to do well, this no, here. That's so, a great point. Right. Yeah, and no, so no, that's an excellent in, point. So. In 2017, here's the question. In 2017, right, as we're sitting here recording this, how many applications do we really have on our network? that are running now that require layer two adjacency? I mean, I know that there are some, I'm just curious if we could find some use cases. I would say if you have to deal with mainframes at all, or you have to deal with really truly legacy applications that have not been built anytime recently, it happens a lot. Um, because, you know, for one thing, you get applications that don't use DNS calls, uh, you know, that are hard coded and you either can't or somebody won't, you know, go do it. You know, because a lot of times it's, you know, it's great to say, let's push back and we need to, we need to be able to re-engineer this. We need to push this to the app guys. Um, what happens if you get into a company that has no app guys or has somebody that doesn't even know how to recode it? And so they come to you and say, look, this has got to move in six weeks and we don't know how to deal with it. And the application guys don't even know what ports the thing runs on. You know, they don't even know, you know, what ports do you live on this? And so you look at this and say, okay, if we're going to move this or we're going to deal with this or I'm going to meet this requirement, whatever it is, whether it's, 
um, you know, I'm going to migrate between data centers or whether I'm going to say, okay, this needs to live in two data centers and you have no control or ownership over the application stack. Um, that's a lot of the times that I get forced into L2DCI, uh, at least from what I've seen. Yeah, and I've had that same experience. Uh, mergers and acquisitions lead to that quite a bit, right? Where, you know, an acquiring company may have the strategic data centers. Um, they buy a company who has one or two data centers and, you know, it's determined that, hey, we're going to let those fold. We're going we're gonna to evacuate those data centers. How easily can we get those workloads, those apps, that data mm -hmm. from, from a retiring data center to a strategic data center? And that, you know, good use case for what we probably call a temporary yeah. uh, data center interconnect. But I think we have to, to, to put a distinction between temporary and long-term layer two DCI. And, and especially when you're talking about applications that require layer two adjacency. And, and I think we push back harder when it's a long-term scenario than when it's short-term, because ultimately um, that, that, that app is going to need more care and feeding. It, it can't live at layer two forever. Um, and I think it's important to keep saying that. I mean, you're, you may not get traction on it the first time or the second time or even the fifth time, but to continue to highlight the risks associated with it, if, if nothing else, to, to be okay when there is a problem down the road, right? To know that you called it out. Cause I think sometimes we just, I, I've seen many network engineers behave in ways that they wouldn't because they felt forced to. And I think sometimes we have to just speak up even if we don't feel or don't believe we'll be heard or we know that there's a business case we still have to call that out as these are the risks and here's what we're doing to mitigate those risks. But ultimately you're going to be forced into these limitations as long as we stay with this legacy application. And that, that's in the context of that long-term DCI solution. Right. Ultimately, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years almost and almost every single time I was connecting data centers, it was a, uh, like, like Nick said, a layer two trunk city to, to a geographically close city and it was a temporary uh, uh, solution that we set up to do some sort of migration. And I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, we, we re-IP our sites, we, we, use, we maybe lean on DNS uh, for, for the applications and you know, obviously working with app teams, it's its own, that's its own show. Um, so, so I think for those short-term um, migration, maybe you want to call them mediation or remediation or mitigation uh, projects, I, I don't see it as a, such a horrible thing like we like to uh, make fun of uh, you know, on Twitter and in the business. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Phil. And I think uh, too, you, you brought up a great point is that when they're really close together, um, that is an entirely different kind of DCI, yeah. you know, scenario. Um, I've had to actually do DCI between different countries and man, that's a whole other experience. Yeah. Um, when you've got to take data centers in different countries because you've got this huge amount of latency. So, mm -hmm. you know, not to jump too yep. far ahead, but we talked about in the show notes, tromboning and some of these things we're going to get into later. Um, right. And, and the, the further the latency is apart, you know, that becomes a huge deal. So certainly the distance plays a massive factor in how impactful layer two is when you're extending it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to make light of it in the sense that geographically close locations. Oh, it's no problem. It's a temp. You still have you still have your uh, uh, a, a large uh, failure domain to deal with now that you've doubled it, and you know, however, that's that's mitigated and, and adjusted. So there's still certainly some serious concerns there, uh, just different, you know. Yeah, but you're 100 right. It, it's a lot easier when they're close. It really yeah. makes things a lot easier when you're trying to do what you're talking about. So I think you're on target there. Yeah, I think and, and frankly, that's and, been pretty much my only experience. I mean, <laughs> well, as far as as far as at being a permanent solution, yeah, you know, we're that's a permanent or rather a temporary solution that we're using. And the long term goal, whether it's six months or a year from now, is to move away from that entirely. Whether it be exploring SD WAN options or it's exploring, um, you know, whatever private links we're going to use, and then run run. Uh, but maybe we're doing a dual hub DMVPN. That's something that I've worked on where we had uh, active, active data centers and that's how we did it. So, so as a temporary solution, yeah, but on, on the roadmap to a, a different layer three permanent solution. And, and uh, also the kind of technologies are completely different. If the data center are closed, it's like, uh, you would do a, a, just a regular trunk for yeah. uh, ge 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 geographically the closed 
data center. But if the if the distance is very uh, is very high, you would do some kind of v, uh, VPLS or mm-hmm. OTV or VXLAN VPN and now NSX and ACI and stuff like that. So the uh, the the, uh, the scope of uh, of the technology is is so is so wide that mm-hmm. uh, it it means completely different things and different uh, argument. Even the um, the hardware can be different. Mm, well. If you want to do OTV, you are stuck with uh, the Nexus Seven K and uh, maybe some uh, some some ASL. So it's completely different. Right. Well, that presupposes that you know what kind of control plane you want. You know what you need and what features are, are necessary. So yeah, you know, when you bring in those types of technologies, yeah. All right. So we've talked to, we've talked about some of the advantages. We've talked about IP address co-location. We've talked about, you know, uh, redundancy for apps that require layer two, layer two adjacency. I think one of the other things that we haven't hit on yet, and, and it's funny because I think this is the one I hear the most. And I don't know if this is a shared experience or just my experiences. Uh, usually when I start a layer two project with a customer, the big thing is I want vMotion. <laughs> I, want to, I want to be able to move my VM from yeah. data center A to data center B. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> And not have to change anything on the VM at all and just have it work, right? I, I think, you know, yep. I, I see nodding, so I'm going to assume that there's some some agreement <laughs> there and smiles yeah. and whatever. That's um, probably the primary, to be honest. Right. I mean, in my experience. Do, do we feel like it's been a more common topic since uh, live migration of virtual machines has been possible? It is the number one topic in yeah. every meeting when, when you... When you're talking about uh, layer two data center interconnect, mm-hmm. you know you know what would be the first argument that will be raised by anybody. It would be the emotion. That's yeah. that's it. And you can you can spend hours just discussing about the emotioning VMs between point A and point B. That's mm-hmm. that's that's the main goal. That what all of the people are trying to um, to achieve. Okay. So there's your use case and that's going to drive, what are we going to use for our control plane? What are we going to do to drive down latency? So yeah. that's, that's a good point. I mean, that's probably a whole show in itself, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions in that use case. Yeah. I think that there's, you know, well, what do you mean? There's, there's some, there's some presuppositions. Mm-hmm. VMs and servers as a whole have gotten larger, not smaller, moving that much real time synced memory across Distance, as as Kevin was, you know, alluding to, when you when you start adding latency, it becomes a dramatically uh, longer event yeah. <laughs> to be motion from one data center to another. Yeah, and so the, we don't have distance requirements. Doesn't it have does, some kind of distance requirements? There's limitations, but they keep getting longer. Um, yeah. And and you know, I hear about these, you know, these guys who've who've proven out a proof of concept, you know, V motion over you know 120 milliseconds of latency or something like that. And I go, why? Why? Book <laughs> of world <laughs> records and networking. Because, because how long did it take to make that V motion happen? Yeah, yeah, all night, right? Uh, to synchronize all those things. And so, and, and I think especially as we talk about that and because it's almost always we're building a disaster recovery data center and we want to be able to V motion our VMs. And I don't remember the last disaster that gave me enough notice to be motion my stuff. So I like, I just, I think it's kind of a funny thing in there. I just wanted to bring it up because it definitely is one of the arguments I hear all the time or not arguments, but one of the, uh, the, the motivating factors is I want to be able to view motion. Now, if I want to be able to view motion has something to do with regular operations and it's worth taking a look at, you know, maybe mm-hmm. there's, maybe there's a valid reason there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it gets really difficult. I don't think it's, I think it's, I think the assumption is that just because I have connectivity, I can view motion. It's not necessarily true. It gets really, really hard as distance starts happening. Yeah. And VMware has gotten better about it. They've been able to do it over longer distances and more efficiently, but it's still not perfect. <laughs> but right. those are good, good points to bring up as far as working with the business or working with the applications owner to really define what problem are we trying to solve? Well, I think that's right. a critical thing in all this, right? We have to start there. Yeah. Right. Because there's going to be times when, you know, a, a layer two uh, extension data center interconnect, whatever the technology, whether it's just a trunk or some sort of like OTV or overlay or whatever the solution mm-hmm. is, is going to be absolutely, it absolutely makes sense. There's a reason why these things exist. But I think there's a lot of times when there's misconceptions. And so I think we really, you know, as, us as engineers, we have to dig down and find out what the real requirements are. And we have to have those conversations with, with the business. And sometimes it's a really hard conversation. I, I say that from of our perspective. I've had several hard conversations where you would go in, we have the conversation. The network engineering team comes to the realization that, wait a minute, we don't really need layer two adjacency. Like we're talking about it, we don't need it, but you, they internally they can't convince the app owners that that's true, and yeah. so and so then it becomes a political thing rather than a technical thing, and 
then you're just kind of throwing the ball in the air, right? Like what's, what's the best solution? Yeah. Uh, do you solve the p- political problem or do you solve the technical problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're right on target with that, Jordan. Cause I think, you know, in, I, as a consultant that sometimes you even have to know what questions to ask them that they don't even know to ask so that you can kind of flesh out no. uh, that business requirement and see what it, what is we really trying to do here? What problem are we trying to solve? Um, and I wanted to add a few more that I think I've seen in the enterprise space. Um, Storage is actually one that I think about it that I didn't have on the show notes, but um, certain kind of storage replication boxes like to be directly connected uh, for certain reasons. So uh, an overlay for storage I've seen before is a requirement that could be one that you could run into. Um, Directly connected subnets for some kind of uh, network devices, whether it's like a router, an edge router that you want to be directly connected because it makes the routing path simpler like BGP edge routers. Um, I've also seen it with security devices that need a heartbeat and they just happen to be separated between data centers. You can do a directly connected subnet stretch between data centers. Uh, I've seen that done. And then this is a little bit out-centered enterprise, but video, if you have to deal with multicast video, sometimes extending that uh, can make a lot more sense than introducing the complexities of a multicast routing overlay um, into your network. So I've seen, seen that as well. Okay. So let's, let's talk about some of the risks, right? So we, I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but the general conclusion is short-term migration. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, long-term, whoa, let's make sure. Like, look, we got to make sure we actually understand the requirements. Is that fair? I mean, is that seem like a fair uh, uh, summary? Uh, <laughs> Kevin's That's like, a fair that's a fair summary. And I think what we're about to talk about next, if I'm reading the notes correctly, is the reason yeah. why that's a fair summary. So, yeah, right. I, so I, I want to talk about long term. Why, yeah. why is the general consensus that long term requires some hesitation? What is, what is it about layer two interconnect that makes you go, hmm, I don't know? Well, broadcast, right? I mean, so many protocols that later to broadcast. You have a host that ARPs that goes mad. You've got BPDUs. You've got um, all these protocols that depend on broadcast. And the farther that broadcast has to go and the larger your failure domain, Mm -hmm. the, the bigger the risk becomes. And so the more you have to think about what those risks are and how to deal with them. I, I mean, that's a an overall summary. We can dig into the details, but yeah. but that's how I see it. Okay. Yep. Ultimately, a problem uh, in in the layer two realm in one DC can propagate to another, and so you have uh, an unnecessary shared fate in the long term. Which in the short term, you can mitigate and deal with as your progress progress uh, your project progresses. So that's kind of right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where the due diligence on the part of the network engineer really comes into play is. Mm-hmm okay, once we define the scope of this, um, what are my options? What, what, what tricks do I have in the bag? Mm. You know, whether that's with one vendor or multiple vendors, but to do your due diligence, right, and to have an informed opinion about how, you know, what are, what are the various ways that I can meet this requirement that at this point seems to be in concrete. You know, I have my marching orders, I've got to provide this solution from a network perspective. Okay, what what what's it my uh, what's available to me in order to provide that with the least yeah. amount of risk, right? And 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 something that's not only you know, hey, I can stand up all kinds of stuff, but that doesn't mean it's supportable, right? For for an mm-hmm. operations team uh, or for people that are they're in a firefighting mode versus someone who may be in an architecture or an implementation where they can set it, they feel like they can set it, forget it, and walk away. Mm-hmm. So I, I think our part you know very much so is doing that due diligence to know what's the best fit for this particular situation yeah i I agree with that and and there's an interesting you know you know when we look at network architecture and design there's there's a component of art and there's a component of engineering right yeah (laughs) and and, and, and sometimes there's a creativity thing going to it like there's been a number of times there's there's a solution that i like using uh or at least presenting when someone tells me that they need layer two uh, extension or data center connect. And that is if they're building the disaster recovery site, do they really need the data centers to be active active? And we talked about mm-hmm. that it can mean different things, but the idea is, do I really need this segment living at both at the same time? Or do I just need to be able to recover segment a from data center a and replace it in data center B if data center a were to go away in and, and yeah, yeah in, in some sort of automated fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be accomplished a lot of ways. Data center interconnects one of them, but there's also we you know we can replicate VMs and hosts and have standby hosts sitting in a yep. bubble. We call yep. it you know uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, a DR bubble where they sit there and they're just mm-hmm. not routed. They sit there they're just waiting. Yep. Data is replicated. It's all sitting there. All we have to do is flip a switch, 
turn off the routing from data center A, turn on the routing from data center B, and we can have those hosts living over there with the exact same IP addresses. We didn't have to change anything on the system. So we met the need, right? Because the need wasn't active, active data centers. The need was disaster recovery. The need was I need to be able to, you know, if a plane drops on this building here and it's gone, this building here can take over with the host with the same exact IP addresses. Yeah. And so I think finding out those requirements are absolutely critical because you can come up with solutions that have less risk yeah. um, that, that accomplish the same things. Yeah, but some people need, need also to understand that if you have a logical problem, not, a, not just a physical problem, if you have a logical problem in data center one, that logical problem will replicate to data center two and then both of your data center are down. So there is no point of doing that if, if what you are trying to, to look for is disaster recovery. Because this is not disaster recovery, right? Well, but that's the DR backup conversation, right? right I mean, yeah. they're, they're different, right? And I think sometimes those terms get muddled. High availability, oh. DR, redundancy. backup, Business redundancy. Continuity. Yeah. Right. That they are different problem sets. And I think sometimes we don't clarify that in uh, across the IT stack, not just in networking, it happens in networking, but also, you know, is this a backup solution or is it a disaster recovery solution? And we need, we need to be clear on that so that we can guide the conversation because you're absolutely right. If your database gets hosed and you replicate that to your DR site, it's not gonna do you any good because you've got the same bad data, right? right? Um, but if your good database gets blown up by an airplane, as Jordan said, you've got a copy of it and you just turn it on. So I, that's not layer two extension, but it is uh, important. Well, uh, anytime I mean, we're about backup and DR. When you're talking so, about a DR data center and storage replication, I mean, a lot of the time you're talking about enormous amounts of data yeah. on a regular basis, if not just nightly, you know, something like that. But often it's, you know, in places I've been, it's continual and you need mm -hmm. the layer two connectivity for that. You yeah. Know, so maybe not for any other reasons, but I think Kevin actually mentioned that before. No. So for that sole reason. So, yeah. So you know. I was actually going to say, Phil, on that, you know, my first question is if it's going to yeah. be, well, I have several questions. It's going to be long-term or, or temporary. And that's what are we putting on the other side of that layer two extension? Because if it's a layer three device, uh, you know, or something else that's, you know, not terribly risky, I might leave it in place for a long time. Uh, we put overlays in data centers that connect routers or other layer three devices that stay for years without issues. So, you know, that's not really a problem. So it depends on, you know, what it is that you need to do um, and how you need to transport it and what that device is. Um, and I think it's also, I think Chris Kane alluded to this because we asked this question. I've actually got one client in Europe that has layer two stretched across three data centers and in their market, they have the highest uptime of any of their competitors, which is kind of odd, but they only do one thing. Like they're not this, they're, they're enterprise, but they only really have one app that they do. And it's one thing that they do well, and they've kind of mitigated, uh, you know, that L2DCI where they need to so that it really doesn't affect the other mm -hmm. data center through multicast storm suppression, broadcast storm suppression, um, you know, all the kind of Chris Kane talked about, I think, in the notes, it's proper engineering. If you're going to do this, do the proper engineering and make sure that you don't kill yourself. I, I think I think that's the key takeaway. If we if we can summarize the show right now, and I'll just go home. Right, is the fact that you can do it, but it requires some level of engineering and thought. Right, I mean that's that's just there's no way to do this without really considering what the implications are, knowing what your requirements are. It seems like there's a sliding scale, right? So it, distance is one of the components, right? How far, and and as a function of that, what the latency is between the two sites, because that right. seems to that's matter. That's really the issue, right? Well, that, that's one of them. You have broadcast. Yeah. You have the number of hosts. Right, because I think the more hosts you have on either side, the more chance of some sort of layer two broadcast issue being replicated. Mm -hmm. um, now, we're going to talk about some of those mitigating factors in a minute, about how you can try to, and for the most part, control those things. But that's that's the risk, right? Um, and then and and then it's, it's almost like you also what's the purpose, right? Is this just to live on both sides all the time as just an active active thing, or is this like you said to to put two interfaces of a external BGP router on the same inside interface and, and run HSRP or some routing protocol between them so that it's super simple and I don't have to traverse over things. Like that may be a more, an easier use case to design for than running, you know, uh, slash 18 network that's really heavily populated in two active data centers. You know, like those are, those well, are two different design 
I was just going to say one of the risks we haven't really talked about either is complexity and and that layer three egress, right? So how, how are you going to deal with that? Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a problem if you're if you it's a problem you're going to have to solve um, if you if you've got hosts on on in two data centers that are geographically not close together and you're going to have different internet ingress and egress points at each mm-hmm. side. How are you going to deal with that from a layer three perspective? And so those are other uh, at least maybe not risks but problems that have to be solved that may lead to additional complexity which may or may not be desired depending on your use case right but that that is solved by what jordan said which is being a network artist which is my new title <laughs> <laughs> network artist. okay if so you i do that artistry i did jordan if you don't mind i did yeah, want to throw one thing in um I, I i've done quite a few wireless projects and i know it's not in the show notes but that's that's one layer two among many sites that uh that i've implemented a a whole bunch of times that i didn't really think of very much where you know you have your centralized controllers at like the school district office and then you have 17 buildings around the entire city and all the wireless comes back to there and maybe that's different because it's uh you know their own fiber but uh that's just something i was thinking about now that and i've never had any issues with that as long as it's designed properly so and again, it depends on the technology. If you want to do uh, some kind of uh, OTV between two data centers, the out, you will have to filter um, HSRP between the two data centers. That works for outbound, but for inbound, you will have to introduce another protocol, which is LISP, uh, in order to avoid traffic to boarding. So it's it's complicated. It's a right. <laughs> so that, but yeah. j- just to add to that, there, there are this is an evolving technology, right? I mean, we've talked about naked spanning trees, how we all kind of started where just layer two was was left to, to run wild and free between two data centers and then VPLS came along and-, and Free range BPDUs, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yes, free yes, range BPDUs. Exactly. Right, right. So, now, now, so we put, I, now we put BPDUs in cages and pump them up with steroids and yeah, I understand. <laughs> but but a, lot of, a lot of manufacturers have seen that, have lived through that with their customers and have provided solutions to make it easier for you uh, to filter those things out, right? To, 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 to reduce the heavy lifting. And, and I think more importantly, to reduce human error. Um, so if there's something embedded naturally in the solution, uh, then it cuts down on the amount of changes you have to make, the amount of changes you're talking about with your peers to an implementation peer review, and and therefore reducing that risk. Because we all know, as good as the technology can be, uh, human error still remains an incredibly significant factor in, in our outages or disruption of service. So I, I think, um, you know, OTV was a great start. But I think a lot of other manufacturers have kind of taken that and run with it and grown, you know, how can we uh, simplify this to make it a little easier to implement and and support uh, Mm -hmm. and yet still provide enough flexibility to meet the, the needs of the particular project. All right, so we're um, I, we, we keep pushing there. So we're we're going to we're going to go there next. We're talking about the mitigation strategies, but just to, just to sum up some of the risks, right? So we talked about shared fate. We talked about um, BPDUs, broadcast storms. We talked about you know uh, ARP storm as well as as potential issues. We we talked about inefficient traffic traffic flows. Mm-hmm. We, we've mentioned the concept of traffic trombone, and we haven't really talked about that. Um, maybe we should talk about that for a second. What that problem is, um, and then one of the other problems that we have is. Uh, stateful device uh, traversal. Mm-hmm. So the and this, this kind of ties in hand in hand with traffic tromboning. So does someone want to take a crack at the traffic tromboning problem, trying to explain it, uh, just so someone who may not be familiar with it can understand? Uh, I, I would, if, if, if yeah, you don't mind. I, so having implemented several of these now with, with various technologies and various manufacturers, in the end, uh, regardless, you still end up with, okay, I've got firewalls. I've got load balancers, mm-hmm. uh, or, or perhaps even in some cases, WAN optimization, which often acts as a proxy and, and is stateful as well, right? Um, so what often happens is I may ingress data center A, uh, consume services in data center B, because that's where the extension went to, that's where the compute for that particular application is. And then when I go to egress, where do I go? Do I go back to data center A? where I originally ingressed, or can I just shoot straight out uh, data center B from an egress standpoint? Throw firewalls in there or any other stateful type device like the load balancers or win optimization. Now I have the tromboning issue, where even though I've 
done my compute in data center B, I've got to mm -hmm. get back to data center A because it's data center A's firewalls that actually hold my state. So that's the, as I understand it, that's the tromboning people get concerned about. Now we've talked about geography and distance. A lot of times uh, that amount of time, even with the trombone is not perceivable to a user right. of, a cons of a service, right? Uh, so while as network engineers, we may know what's going on behind the covers and we get a little twitchy about the fact that we know traffic's going back and forth and, and perhaps we have to keep an eye on bandwidth because we're potentially doubling the amount of bandwidth that we're consuming across that DCI. Uh, but a lot of times uh, understanding that, yes, I've got to return to that original data center uh, is just something that the, the network team and the operations teams are aware of, but not necessarily even system administrators, application owners, or, or compute or uh, customers uh, are actually aware of uh, you know the fact that they're bouncing between data centers before they get mm -hmm. the traffic back to them. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Traffic tromboning in itself is not necessarily an issue, but it is something you have to be aware of. Can, can yes. I disagree with that for a second? <laughs> Oh, well, please, please do. If, please. If you, can I disagree with that? So if I would you disagree with the you. latency far enough, it's going to happen because we actually had traffic tromboning. So I agree with Chris. When you hit a certain latency threshold, absolutely, they may not notice it because, the, the you know, depending on what you're tromboning between, uh, you certainly uh, may not notice the issue. Um, I, one of the first lessons I learned when I did this a few years ago was don't ever divorce the application from the database between two data centers because really bad things happen. Yeah. Oh, you get, you get double trombones. Just, yeah, oh yeah, it was yeah. it was tromboning. It was before we had implemented, uh, like I think like Nicholas mentioned, uh, first hop redundancy protocols with multicast mm -hmm. filtered so that you could egress your local data center. Um, you know, all the things that you learn when you first do this. That. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot yeah, of fun. Good, yeah. Yeah, that's good times. But um, when you stretch the latency far enough, it, it kills everything. Everything yeah. just dies. So I agree with Chris in a certain latency window, but when you get yeah. into international, um, it can get ugly quickly. Now, I got yeah. excited because you said you were going to disagree with me, but I don't disagree with anything that you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the problem in and of itself isn't a problem. It's it's you have to factor in what the effect of the, what the effect of the trombone is. Latency is going to be part of that. Bandwidth is going to be part of that. And yep. you said doubling bandwidth, yep. and it may not be doubling. Like you said, it could be quadrupling bandwidth. Yep. And, it's, and it may not just be a multiple uh, or a straight multiple like that because some things are asymmetric in the amount of bandwidth that's required. So while the request in may be very, very light, the response may be very, very heavy, and it may mm -hmm. be eight times the traffic that you would have normally had if you had egressed the local, even just on one request, not just twice. Mm -hmm. And so you have to right. really understand your traffic profile. Uh, if yeah. latency isn't a concern, you can buy your way out of tromboning by buying more bandwidth, but you can't fix the latency issue. Latency is, sure. is a deal breaker, right? Yeah, it really is. It affects it a lot when you're when you're trying to deal with that. Right. And there's and there's kind of some competing things here we mentioned and we're kind of getting into mitigating the risk. But the idea of this, you know, do I locally route or do I send it back to where it came from to maintain the stateful? Like, so we want to see the efficiency. We want to see, OK, if this data center B, uh, if I'm replying to traffic, I want my router to be in data center B to make the decision about where it goes. Um, but now we run into how do I ensure the return path is the same, so we don't, so that, we don't, yeah. so we don't step and, and try to send return traffic through a different firewall than what it came in, and yeah, gets, fall in love killed. with slash thirty two routing, <laughs> which isn't data center to connect. Now you're routing. <laughs> <laughs> but All right. that's a good point, though. You bring up slash thirty two. I mean, just as a side note, it, it is. You know, we are seeing routers and switches with much larger tables than we had in the past. So a lot of us grew up on aggregate, 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 right? You know, uh, um, hey, roll this up into a slash 16 so that I can hide the, the, the bad things that are happening outside of a summary. But we are seeing with those bigger tables that people have moved to, hey, I'll, I'll announce slash 32s. You know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. So I think Wisp and so many other ones kind of led to the idea of, well, wait a minute, you know, the hardware and software is capable of it. Maybe we can we can leak some more specific routes to kind of help with some of that back and forth. Yeah, yeah. and that's and I will bring up a very specific point that I ran into that you got to be really careful of. If you're ever dealing with a network migration, one thing that uh, you may or may not have run into is if you've got a bunch of MPLS clouds that you're going to be advertising these across the DCI. And I know I'm jumping a little bit because you mentioned the slash 32. One of the things we ran into in trying to mitigate with slash 32 uh, to return traffic to the right data center for stateful traffic with layer two DCI 
um, is that that traffic that had to get advertised into an MPLS cloud for reachability for some other things. And one of the things we found specifically with a network merger is um, MPLS PEs, depending on who you buy from, are typically only they only carve out a certain amount for yeah. organizations you know, to use. And so if your routing tables get too large, most uh, MPLS PEs will top out at, you know, five, eight thousand. Sometimes I've seen it even as high as ten thousand <laughs> routes. You're being but generous merging, sometimes. Some are, some well, are yeah, way smaller. Yeah. You're right. Some of them are even smaller. And so we actually had a case where, uh, you know, one day everything stopped routing. We dumped a bunch of 32s in to fix a problem. And they were like, yeah, everything's gone. And we're like, ah, oh, we're looking at the routing tables. Everything's good. Everything looks great. And come to find out the MPLS PE had run out of reserve space. And so that was, well, it's not strictly L2DCI. It was a challenge that we ran into because of that mitigation. That's a great point to bring. Yeah, probably if we, you know, summarize at some point during the show, that, you know, what are the things to look out for? That would definitely be a lesson to learn. A scar that you have of hey, I, oh, I that, yeah, sure. that was a scar. I, I need to make <laughs> sure the way in scars. Yeah, are, yeah. MPLS routing tables are not indefinite. <laughs> like that's MPLS. the yeah. Oh, yeah. you just yeah. gotta, you gotta pay for it. Just yeah, like um, um, jumbo <laughs> frames come up the same way, right? I mean, we are talking about in almost all these cases is an encapsulation methodology. And if your provider, if you don't own the fiber and you're, you're getting that fiber, that transport from someone else, jumbo frames becomes an issue, right? So I right. ask my customers, I, I advise them all the time. You may have jumbo frames on your primary path, but you better ask your service provider 222 mm -hmm. times yeah. are jumbo pass enabled on every single uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary path I may take during the maintenance window. So another another lesson learned. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've talked. I mean, I actually, I kind of I had a thought there along the slash 32. So th slash 32 networking is really what we're seeing. Um, you know, manifests itself in some of these overlays as well. When we talk about some of these more SDN style fabrics, right? Uh, whether it's EVPN or, you know, a name, <laughs> name the flavor of the week of whatever <laughs> L2 overlay L3 um, style it is, but a lot of them are doing that, right? And they're interjecting not a slash 32, but rather a slash 48, right? For the MAC address and it's adjacency information into that table. Same idea. Host is there. We're going to have larger routing tables. Just know right where it's at. Um, I, I, I think that that concept, the idea that we have more resources is allowing us to do that is kind of mm -hmm. why we're seeing some of those changes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Jordan, just to, 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 I guess, to clarify that point too, the slash 32, typically when I use that is in network migrations, you know, when you're doing network migrations and mergers, I think that's when the slash 32 comes into play the most because you're dealing with things that you may have not designed that way or wanted to be that way, but that's the way it is. So I would say slash 32 probably wouldn't be my go-to if it was something I was designing from the ground up, it's kind of more of a reactive mitigation type stuff. Well, and there's, and there's a limitation on that as well, right? So when we're talking about internet edge, like it's great on MPLS or, mm -hmm. you know, private WANLI, but when you get to the internet edge, find, find a provider who'll take anything less than a slash 24. Um, like you actually it, can do that. You just can't <laughs> do it outside of that provider. So right. a lot of providers well, will let you leak less than a 24, but they won't ever advertise it outside of their space. Sure. So yeah, there's, there's complications there as well as it relates to the internet edge and how to get, you know, my yeah. traffic to the right data center if you're sharing segments. Um, so I want to talk a little bit, we, we've, we keep going back to these mitigation things. We talked about BPDU filtering. I want to talk about why, why is that important? Why, why is, why is filtering BPDU between data centers? Why is, why does that matter? Why well, I need to take a shower now. We, we are saying some bad words. I need to take a shower. Well, I mean, we went from free range BPDUs to caged steroid BPDUs. They're tasty now, but probably not very good for us. No, why, 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 why the, why, why are we filtering BPDUs on DCI links? Come on, guys. <laughs> well, I, so we've talked about, you know, spanning tree was great and it's, it's served us for quite a period of time. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of effort to either enhance that or displace it, right? We've, we, we saw Trill and, and, and several mm -hmm. other technologies come and, and some of them left already. Um, but, you know, I think to me, the BPDU issue is to Yvonne's point, you know, I, I may have a great service in data center one, but uh, if something goes sideways in data center one, I do not want that propagated to data center two. Mm -hmm. I, I do not want to be standing on the carpet of the CIO 
explaining that, yes, they spent a lot of money giving me the second data center, and I blew it up in two seconds, just like I blew up the first data center, right? <laughs> um, so, so filtering BPDUs, whether that's um, something you have to do manually or something that's automatically done for you, depending on which manufacturer you have. Um, the idea of I can have a spanning tree domain that's unique to each data center, I think is very important not to propagate those bad things from happening from one well, to the other. It really solves two problems, right? The first is the first is propagation. The other two is layer two pathing, right? Yeah, because yeah. because if our spanning tree root for our VLAN or whatever segment we're on exists at data center A, but I'm in data center B, even if I have a gateway on data center A, if it's not part of my tree, I got to go all the way over there mm -hmm. from a frame perspective yeah. to make it back. Right. And that Correct. may be before my IP packet trombones. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, so that, yeah, that's so, the, yeah. So the, that comes with the, with the importance of uh, where, where should be placed the root? Where, where should you put the, the root of your spine tree domain? And that's something that is really, really important in that kind of uh, consideration when you want to filter BPDUs between two data centers. Right, and without filtering, there's no right answer, right? It doesn't yeah. matter whether you put it in A or yeah. B, it's gonna be the wrong answer for yeah. whatever hosts live at the oh. other side, right? Oh, 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 the and so you, exactly. you have to filter it from a pathing perspective, but we also yeah. do it right because of those propagation issues. Mm -hmm. um, we definitely don't wanna see you know, spanning tree related outages causing spanning tree related outages in our other data center because shared fate is a bad thing. Is that right? <laughs> yes, it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. So also in that we've talked about limiting broadcast, multicast ARP, like it's a lot of the same things there. Mm -hmm. um, so in there we're talking like storm control, we're talking uh, filtering those things. And, and like Chris has brought up multiple times, you know, sometimes this is, this is something that's done in the protocol and sometimes this is something that you have to do yourself. So in Phil's example where, you know, data center is, you know, 10 blocks away and this is a temporary solution, maybe I just put some sort of broadcast control on that trunk make yeah. sure it doesn't exceed yeah. a, partic a particular per percentage of traffic. And that way, if I do get a storm, at least I'm not propagating all of my link speed of that traffic across, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas when you start talking about some of the more advanced solutions, it's going to be built in. The idea is that we're not going to allow broadcast to go that way. Um, but one of the problems that comes up with this when we start filtering these packets, right, is unknown unicast. I know this is something that UTV takes care of, but the idea is when I don't know how to get to an address, typically I broadcast for it. Right. Right. And if I don't know where it's at and my broadcast doesn't make it across the link, I need a router to respond for me. But if that router doesn't know where it's at, it has a hard problem responding as well. And so I know this is a problem specifically in UTV where you have to, UTV, OTV, where you have to explicitly, uh, the, the perfect example of this is if you have a NIC that's specifically set aside for vMotion and you haven't done a vMotion in like six hours, that NIC's MAC address is not in anybody's table, right? It just doesn't exist. And so now all of a sudden I'm trying to do a V motion from A to B and I can't get to it. So just, I want to bring that up that if you're, if you're looking at it, it's one of those things you have to consider, how does unknown unicast get handled in whatever protocol you choose, because some of them handle it differently than others. You guys, uh, you guys, have any you guys don't or? hard code all your Mac addresses in your environments. Uh, yeah. I mean, on my, on my, on my core switch, I just take all, all the Mac addresses and put them in there. Yeah. That's what I thought we were at this point. That's, that's what SDN is for, Phil. That's what SDN takes care of. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm doing it with, but, but with, uh, with Ansible doing, doing it uh, right. the right way. <laughs> oh, the right way. You've automated, you've right. automated your static Mac address. Exactly. Awesome. Right. That was a joke, by the way. This that is, was the I, best I'm answer of the night. Nick, silly, Nick wins the, Nick wins the episode. Very nicely done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we talked about localized Anycast gateway. So the idea of uh, having a layer three gateway to each side, some of the complications around that and stateful devices. So we won't, we won't harp on that any longer. Um, so <laughs> we've hit on some of these, but I want to take a second to talk about maybe some of the misconceptions. Like <laughs> what is layer two extension and what isn't? And I'm going to bring up my favorite one. And I know you guys are going to disagree with me because we've had spirited discussions around this. I don't see layer two extension as DR. Um, I just don't. I think that even with all of the mitigations, DR being disaster recovery, I'm yep. sorry, acronyms, initialisms. Um, I think that I think the, the the problem for me is that with all of the mitigation of shared fate, we're, we're doing one of two things: either either we have a shared fate problem, or we're using tricks and breaking the way layer two works to specifically make this conglomeration of things happen and not kill us in the process. And so, to me, I look at DR and I say. I have site A and I want it to be as different from site B 
as possible. I don't want them to share anything with the exception of being able to host the application that I need to. And layer three is the way to do that. Maybe that whole bubble routing thing is the way to do that because they don't share any resources at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if you need layer two, there are some times where you just can't get away from it, but then I don't really feel like it's a true disaster recovery scenario because now, now I've introduced risks that didn't exist elsewhere strictly because of this limitation. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna shut up now and let you guys say you're wrong. Well, I mean, if, <laughs> if you're talking about an entire uh, DC outage, then yeah, I see where you're coming from. But what if you just lose a rack with, you know, a, a certain application and you have to spin that up somewhere else, you know? So, so I don't, I don't see it necessarily as, um, it, it's a tool and therefore part of, of a disaster recovery plan um, and, you know, a, a business continuity solution for a particular application. So I'm going to bring my exchange servers up over here. And there's other things that we do. I know where, again, I've mentioned DNS again, because uh, we do lean pretty heavily on that for DR. So it really is just a tool. So I don't, I don't necessarily look at it as DR or not DR, but it's part of how we configure DR for a particular application or for the entire data center, which is, I think, kind of what you were talking about. Well, I, not necessarily. I, so if you no. do a routed solution, it's segment by segment. Yeah. Right. Like that, that becomes your lowest common denominator. I can't have a segment live in two places. So my failover mechanism can only be as granular as the segment size. So it doesn't have to be a whole data center. It could be a segment, but when you're talking about a rack, mm -hmm. I can't just fail a rack. Well, I, right. I presuppose that a rack is a subnet, you know, that you wow, know. you have really organized data centers. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jordan, I'll go ahead and disagree with Do you. Do it. Come on. I, I will on. say, yeah. well, here's what I'm going to say is, and I, you know, and I've, I've, I've worn the hat of a team lead engineer, you know, working before I became a consultant. So, you know, I viewed things a little bit differently. Now I'm a consultant, so I view the world a little bit differently. But I think, you know, you're, whatever you're faced with and whatever you're given is the challenge that you have to solve. So if you've got a company that's invested 10 or $15 million into an app and they're not going to go redesign it, well, that's what you've got. And so, you know, if L2 is the way you've got a DR, that's what you've got to work with. So I don't disagree with anything that's been said in the sense that we should push for layer three. We should push for better application programming. We should, you know, say, hey, we want to move the complexity to this point because that's where we want it. But at the end of the day, what you've got to work with is what you've got. And if that's the mechanism by which you have to DR, because that's the way the app is designed, then I think that's something that you, you eventually say, okay, I'm going to own that and then I'm just going to deal with it. I'm going to design it. Oh, please understand. We, please, we please do understand that, that when when I say that I've implemented lots of DR solutions that include layer two data center interconnect. Not because I like it as a solution. I just don't consider right. it true DR. Because if I was if I was sitting in the business's seat, I'm looking at all that shared fate, and that's what has me concerned. Well, and so it depends on where it depends on what is going to flow over layer two, because I've seen some application implementations where there's not really a lot of chatty, chatting between data centers unless you do have to declare a DR. So, you know, I've seen some built in such a way where the application is really self-contained within its data center um, because the load balancers and the application infrastructure really keeps it confined to its data center. Which is the way that you need to move. It should be, right? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in my mind. It isn't I, if, always. No, it no, isn't but, always, but... No, you don't don't pull the consultant answer on me here. It's not. It depends. <laughs> no, right? that, I mean, it really you know, so here's the thing, you know, and I look at this, too, because I'm a business owner. So sometimes, you know, I look at the financial aspect, too, is that I empathize with somebody that says, hey, I just spent 20 million dollars getting these guys to code this and I don't want to change it. I wouldn't want to spend $20 million either. So, you know, I, I get it from a geek and from an engineering standpoint, and we want to, you know, fight the good fight and push for things. But the reality of the financial and business situation is that, you know, it, at least in my mind, and I'm going to go ahead and say this, I hear all this, we should have layer three, layer three should be everywhere. I hear it from the web scale guys, the app should all be layer three. Most of my world, most of the apps are not layer three resilient. A lot of them are not. You know, the newer, newer stuff that's in the cloud, yeah, but the stuff that most enterprises have, it's not. I don't see the same thing. And maybe that's why I hold the opinion that I do is that when I start digging in on the apps that my customers have, almost all of them can be solved with a layer three solution. Almost all of them. I, I do on occasion. And in those cases, you can't argue it, right? Like you need layer two adjacency. That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's actually part of the requirements, but, but it really comes down to, and I guess this is, <laughs> I set myself up with a softball here. I, I think that we're moving, I'm moving, we're moving complexity from layer three to layer two, or not from layer three to layer two, we're moving complexity from the application stack to networking because we don't want to deal with the complexity in the application world. And so I can appreciate your scenario in which someone spends $20 million writing an app. I, I can't 
you know, how, how do you tell yeah, them? You're saying like, you're saying we don't want to deal with it. It's not like I have a choice. It's not like I made the decision. Somebody <laughs> else made the decision. No, but I'm, I'm saying we as, as, let me rephrase that. I will say IT organizations generally, and of course this isn't everybody, broad brush strokes don't apply to everybody. You get the idea. Sure. Um, but, but what I'm finding a lot of is, you know, I want to be able to be motion because I don't want to have to figure out what it takes to do a DNS style failover or to have this application live in two segments or to pay the money to auto update my app or to spend mm -hmm. that time doing those things. And so in that, we, we kind of just default, well, I know there's a tool to do this in layer two, so let's just do it there. But when we do that, the complexity isn't any more or less complex. It's about equal level of complexity, most likely in my head. There may be situations sure. where that's not true, but instead of, of addressing the complexity in the app layer, We've done it there and then we've added risk, risk that wouldn't exist if we had done it at the app layer and may not exist at all if we did it at the app layer. Like you have to look at the whole equation and I don't, and I don't see, and this is just, this is my blanket statement. I don't see my customers doing that. Um, looking at the, looking at the, at the complexity versus risk versus where does it make sense to actually do this? I think yeah. people default and to layer two because that is the easiest implement because there is a vendor who will provide me a product to do it. Right. Now, do you feel better? So in those scenarios, do you feel better or would you feel better if you could just pick off and be very strategic about what gets extended? Yes. Right. Because, because you have the philosophy of, you know, any VLAN could be anywhere. Doesn't necessarily mean every VLAN should be everywhere. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. When you, when you have to, you try to minimize it, right. You yeah. say as, as little as possible, as little distance, all the, all the trade-offs we talked about, we try to mitigate as many of them as possible, but you know, like it, yeah, not every VLAN everywhere. It's not usually how it gets presented to me when we start, right? It's usually, we have this data center here, we want this data center here. We want them wow. all to be the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything else? Uh, let's see. Anything else along that idea of misconceptions now that I've set myself up for two? I, I'll, bring up, I'll bring up my misconception of, you know, one of the, and you and I have talked about this, is that, you know, one of the biggest problems with layer two is that it, the wrong tools, in my opinion, get used to solve it. You know, and we talked about this with using, you know, I spent a lot of time in the ISP world. And so, you know, you say, okay, we want to take Ethernet and we're going to extend it a distance. Well, that's, there's protocols for that. You know, there are protocols that exist to take Ethernet and extend it a distance. But, you know, oh, we don't want to use those because, yeah, that's, you know, I'm not familiar with that. And I'm not comfortable with that. And, you know, and I totally get that. You know, I get that. But like in my mind, it's like, well, OTV didn't always exist, but we went out and figured out how it worked and we implemented it. So, right. you know, there's things in, in the carrier world because in the carrier world, it's, you know, and that's, you know, kind of the lens through which I view the world. And I have this kind of enterprise on the side, you know, that I work on, but it's layer twos everywhere. We do tens of thousands of VLANs stretched across the world, all over the place. And I'd say the vast majority of the aggregation and last mile, most carrier networks is all layer two. So there's all these mechanisms to deal with the vast majority of problems that were mentioned. And I oftentimes feel like we get, um, you know, shoehorned and, and pigeonholed into, well, we got to use this because this is what we have and this is what we know. And so rather than take a technology that was purpose built, you know, to take Ethernet and stretch it a distance and well, let's go use that. That's, that's a really so good point. For the, for the eager beavers who want to go out there and Google once they listen to this, what, what are some of those protocols that you're thinking? Because they don't know that they're there. Um, so I would say the things that I would look at, one of the, MPLS is probably my favorite technology to use to do DCI simply because um, MPLS solves a number of problems. If you're, but that's if really you're a layer two and a half. Oh, wow. Oh. Should we, we go back to that? Oh, man. Oh, we don't have time for that fight. That's going to be another episode. Let's <laughs> yeah, tag layer two. Okay. Yeah, great. <laughs> so um, I, I like MPLS, and then VPLS has got a number of extensions to it. And in fact, if you even dig into, you know, VXLAN and, and AVPN, which I, I haven't had a use case to put into data centers yet, but, you know, there's a dependency on uh, VPLS even with those, simply because... MPLS solves so many problems. So if you get into a situation where you're like, we're going to connect these things and then we have no idea what we're going to do in the future. We may have to do this and we have, you know, different business units and we have all these different requirements. 
I like MPLS because it opens up options. And one of the things, and this is probably the service provider coming out in me, but I like to build a network infrastructure so that I've got options that when somebody comes to me and says, hey, we've got to do this and there's no choice, I don't have to take the network back down to do it. I can put an overlay and take something and send it across and do it in a very safe way. Um, and, and I even have to counsel my service provider clients on this because a lot of them, especially smaller service providers, are like, well, why would I do MPLS? I'm like, why wouldn't you? Um, because it solves so many different problems. I'm and looking, I'm looking for your BG GP hammer back there. I'm not seeing you. Yes. I'm looking for the less yeah, <laughs> network behind me. So, yeah, that, you know, that that's, is true. That's, that's the best that I got. Um, <laughs> so I even have my hashtag big trouble in L2DCI back on the whiteboard. Um, uh, all right. I, I, so think, anyway, I think we're going to have to end it there. <laughs> so VPLS, uh, to answer everyone's questions, VPLS, advanced VPLS and Ethernet virtual circuits. Check those out if you want to look at some carrier standards uh, and Metro Ethernet forum Ethernet. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much to our guests. Uh, it definitely got spirited there towards the end, and I appreciate that. Uh, very much uh, value your opinion. Uh, thanks for the for those of you who have uh, lasted this long into this show, which I'm sure at this point is going to be somewhat over an hour, our longest yet. Um, so uh, before we jump off, I would just want to give uh, our co-hosts here an uh, opportunity to introduce themselves, tell you where to find them. Yvonne, why don't you, uh, why don't you share first here? Yeah, um, I'm Yvonne Sharp. You can find me on the blog at esharp.net um, or on Twitter at Sharp Network. All right, Phil. Hey, I'm Phil Gervasi. My blog is networkphil.com and Twitter is at network underscore Phil. All right, I'm Jordan Martin. You can find me at jordanmartin.net or at bcjordo on Twitter. Uh, if you're looking for more uh, networking content, uh, either uh, uh, video um, like you're watching now, or if you're listening to us audio with the audio feeds, uh, the best place to find us is at thenetworkcollective.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at netcollectivepc. Uh, next week, that's right, just one week away, we're going to be releasing a new episode. That episode was recorded at Cisco Live, uh, so keep an eye out for that. And then two weeks, we'll be recording our next community roundtable. Uh, and that's going to be on uh, some fundamentals of wireless. That one should be fun. I'm looking forward to that episode. Yep. Uh, so until then, uh, thanks a lot. <laughs>